For most, living in a home, especially if you are the owner, is a constant battle with nature, a never-ending war with the elements. This isn't limited to home maintenance and repair, like pressure washing sidewalks or repainting those old wooden colonial shutters, but the continual attack and defense against the creeping encroachment of nature. As soon as the lawn is mowed, the leaves turn red, orange, brown, and then they blanket the property. When the tangled mess of vines leached against the vinyl siding is torn free, then the hedges need clipped. There is no rest, no reprieve. You need to have resolve, stamina. The fight will never end. The foe will never fall. If the perpetual growth of nature is the whale, the homeowner is Jonah. But this isn't limited to greenery. If the flora is the infantry, the front line, the fauna rides in like the cavalry to really put the pressure on. Here are a few examples of the many ways insects and rodents have tried to destroy my wife, in her words. Wasps made a nest right by her bedroom window. There's a family of mice living under the couch on her porch. Ants everywhere. My feet. Help. I thought it was just a black garden hose, but no, it was a snake. Found a bird's nest in the laundry room. One of them swooped me. Cockroach, cockroach, cockroach. No, no, no. There's a big spider living on the handle of our garbage can. Black widows are the ones with the red hourglass, right? I didn't know caterpillars could bite you. I spent the first 30 years of my life in California and the Pacific Northwest. And while insects and rodents, of course, existed there on the West Coast, their force and number pales in comparison to the southern states. My lady, bless her, is from outside of Milwaukee. And Wisconsin is basically Canada, so it's too cold for bugs up there. For us, life in the South has been eye-opening. Nothing could have prepared us for the deluge of creepers and crawlers. In the beginning, it felt apocalyptic. There's a reason why the Egyptians weren't plagued by swarms of bunny rabbits or labradoodles. We've gotten used to it now, after a few years in Louisiana, Florida, and now Georgia, but it's taken some time to adapt. No matter what sprays or bug bombs you use, no matter how clean the house is, or how tight the doors and windows are sealed, they will still find a way in. Over time, you learn to live with it, and them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we cuddle up on the couch with cockroaches every night, but killing them all would be like trying to murder the ocean's tide. Now, if possible, we just take them outside. We are trying to live harmoniously with a part of Mother Nature that, without malice, is trying to reclaim our house, and if given the chance, us. But what if the drive isn't just instinct? What if that flora and fauna is actively trying to kill you? What if the intentions of the cockroaches or snakes really are sinister? That's just downright terrifying, isn't it? Whereas we are used to insects and rodents living their own lives, sometimes invading ours in the process, the fear remains dormant, because deep down, we know that they will only bite or attack if they're feeling threatened. What if, rather than self-preservation, nature came after you for fun? In today's episode, I will be reading chapter 3 of the untitled manuscript I found in the basement of our first home, a segment where Kate and her mother-in-law find stranger animal danger in the backyard, while the house seems to fight back against new additions. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. 
Chapter 3 Joan sat in a faded, plastic Adirondack chair near the edge of the pool, an unlit menthol cigarillo in one hand and a mug of coffee in the other. She was watching Kate as her daughter-in-law circled the pool with a long-handled skimmer. Music played through one of Denny's many voice-activated speakers bolted to the house's brick wall. Getting all that junk off the top is good, Joan said. But if it's the leaves and everything at the bottom, now that's your problem. There isn't anything at the bottom. We've vacuumed a dozen times. Kate pulled out the skimmer and wiped her cheek on a shirt sleeve. The white bandana tied around her head was already soaked through. Her curly blonde hair, piled on top, had taken on a darker, stringy look. Not even nine in the morning, the temperature was already boiling. The dogs had come down to the pool area and were milling around by the shed. Roxy, the bigger of the two, splayed out like a sphinx and took in the morning sun. Her eyes fluttered and began to close. Echo sniffed around the corners of the fence before joining her sister in the sun. They nipped at the occasional fly, but both were in full-on nap mode. I bet you miss some down there, Joan said. Look at all these trees. They're always shedding. Just do a couple of deep scoops. I can't. Why? It'll help. Trust me. My arms aren't long enough to reach, Kate said, the heat testing her patience. Well, here, let me. Joan made a show of standing up. Mom, you're doing it again. Joan put her hands up in mock surrender. Okay, okay, okay. I was just saying. Can we at least change the music? Kate turned on her heels and began walking counterclockwise around the concrete rim. I thought you liked Elton John. Denny told me you saw him in concert once. I did. Fell asleep about three songs in. How is that even possible? He's incredible. He's a hideous little leprechaun man. Kate couldn't help but laugh. The woman was a character. They'd spent a good amount of time together since she'd met Denny, but in the weeks since the parents had driven in from Florida, they were always in the same space. After bouts of convincing, Joan had helped Kate rearrange the kitchen drawers, thinned out her and Denny's closet, cleaned out the attic, waxed the floors, tied the curtains into knots for some reason, and stationed half a dozen boxes and open totes full of unused items in the carport for a future yard sale. Sometimes Kate got irritated, like when Joan started talking about her conspiracy theories involving lizard people and illicit gun and drug running through Target stores, but more often than not, it felt good to have a mom in the house. Safer. Ever since Echo's little freakout, Kate had kept the master bathroom door rolled shut, and the dog hadn't acted the same since. Having Joan around was helping to convince Kate that the whole thing was just the delusions of someone in half-sleep. Not that Denny wasn't a comfort, but he'd been busy helping Barry with either errands for their new house, or with various projects around their own home. That morning, while the ladies were down by the pool, Denny and his father had left to rent another U-Haul, which they then drove to nearby Fort Gordon to pick up a new refrigerator. The fridge was the next in a long line of appliances that were in perfect functioning order when they bought the house, but had since started acting up or quit altogether. The dishwasher, stove, water heater, one after another. Even the washing machine they had bought needed to be replaced shortly after it was delivered. Just stopped working. Credit lines were maxed. Using Barry's veteran ID to get on base meant a cheaper fridge and no sales tax. Echo gave a loud bark from behind the shed. Kate looked up to see both had left their usual spots. The grass was still indented from the bony points of their legs. Both dogs were out of view then, their barks vicious and increasing in intensity. Normally, these dogs were lovers, not fighters. 
The last and only time Kate had heard them in this sort of frenzy was when she caught them cornering a nutria back in Florida. The thing was hissing and pawing back at them while the girls advanced, then retreated. Eventually, Denny was able to pull the dogs back, grabbing their collars and tugging hard. The intruder then played dead. Denny let him be, and in the morning, the nutria had gone. Their frenetic barking was worse this time, feverish, manic. Joan got out of her lounge chair and was walking the length of the pool, but Kate was closer. When she came around the back of the shed, she saw her dogs on the other side, teeth bared, throats already seeming to be raw from roaring and growling. The back of the shed was about two feet from a rusted chain-link fence, three feet high, which was then encased in a six-foot wooden slat fence. In this space, bordered between the shed and fencing, two barking dogs and Kate, shoeless and already sunburnt down her legs, was a black snake. Sleek scales glistened in the sun. In the center of its coiled form, as if they had been dropped into a weaved basket, were a pair of mice. Kate's Labradors had interrupted lunch. At first, Kate's mind wanted to assure her that this was just an old garden hose, thrown behind the shed with the piles of cracked brick and paving stones. But when its diamond-shaped head turned her way, a slow hiss seeping out around its flicking tongue, Kate felt a bolt of panic plunge into her stomach. She took two steps back, and the snake, either feeling more cornered or seeing Kate's retreat as weakness, lunged at her, fangs glistening. The attack came up short, six or so inches from the toes on her left foot, and the advance made the girls close in on the other side. The snake flipped around and shot out at them, but both dogs slunk back, barely missing the fangs. At the same time, Joan had appeared on their side, grabbing at their collars and yanking them away from the scene. Kate scrambled back, not taking her eyes off the snake until she'd gotten back in front of the shed. By then, Joan and the dogs were already out of the pool area, running up the steps to the house. Kate followed, slamming the gate closed behind her. There was a sharp knock on the front door, and since they rarely used that entrance, Kate needed to move a few of her in-law's boxes out of the way to answer it. It was one in the afternoon, the dogs were cooped up in the master bedroom, locked off from the rest of the house. They'd jump all over the visitor, whether they found him to be friend or foe. Waiting on the other side of the door was a tall, uniformed man. Sweat stains ringed his collar and left crescent shapes in his armpits. He was balding, with dozens of beads of sweat threatening to tumble down his face and into his bushy beard. Strange men were always off-putting to Kate, as they should be, but he had a soft face kind. And he held his ID out for her to take. Kate Coleman? Taking the card and inspecting it briefly, Kate smiled, then handed it back. That's me. Thanks so much for coming by so quickly. Not a problem. That's my job. I'm Griff. Well, we appreciate it, Griff, Kate said, feeling awkward that she just parroted the man's name back to him. Now, where did you see that racer? After their quick escape from the pool area, Kate and her mother-in-law had spent a half hour looking at pictures of snakes, specifically those common to northeast Georgia. Not talking to each other, really, but rather staring at their phones while scrolling through informational pages and muttering short phrases like fanged, non-venomous, constrictor. They agreed that what they saw was an eastern racer, a fast mover that wouldn't hesitate to lash out and bite if it felt threatened. While not poisonous, one article detailed how these particular snakes could lay up to 36 eggs in early summer, 
Images of an overgrown pool area teeming with Mama Slither and her offspring. Their silky bodies coiling around the dog's legs made both Joan and Kate shudder. Kate had made the call to animal control. Down by our pool, behind the shed, Kate said. The man took out a pen and scribbled onto a clipboard he'd been holding. And about how big would you say it was? From behind her, Joan had appeared from the hallway. She said, had to be at least three or four feet. More scribbling. Then, as if just noting the afternoon heat that was bullying its way into the house, Kate was going to invite Griff, the animal control officer, in, but Joan beat her to it. Kate, don't make the man sweat out there in the front yard all afternoon. Sorry, yes, come in. A grateful smile lit the man's face, and he stepped by Kate into the entryway. Can I get you something to drink? Kate asked. Some water would be great. Kate left Joan with the man and went to the kitchen. The overhead light was off, so she flipped the switch. Nothing. She tried to tap the bulb, but it was just out of reach. Feeling beside the fridge for a step stool, a wild thought came to her and she yanked her hand back. What if the same snake had made the trek under the house, came in through the pipes, and was waiting in the dark to take off some of her fingers as a prize? Admonishing herself with a little shake of the head, Kate retrieved the stool, reached up, and felt that the bulb had come unscrewed, but was still hot to the touch. Using a rag from the counter, she tightened it. The light sputtered, then lit up the room. From the entryway, the voices of Joan and Griff went back and forth, her mother-in-law giving him more details than were probably needed. Kate grabbed a pint glass and stuck it into the fridge's dispenser. There was a click, but no water flowed. Stupid, Kate thought. Where do you think your husband is right now? She filled the glass from the kitchen sink's tap. There were probably ice cubes left in the freezer, but that meant letting the residual cold out. If Denny didn't come home with a new one, they might run the risk of losing a couple hundred dollars worth of food. Skipping the ice cubes, Kate went back to the entryway. Joan was at the door, while Griff had already gone back outside. He was standing a few feet from the door and was inching his way backward, around the sidewalk that led to the driveway and his county truck parked there. No need to go that way, Joan was saying. Griff waved her off with his clipboard and said, No trouble, I'll just meet you at the back gate. What about your water? Griff was hurrying up the driveway slope. Over his shoulder he said, Thanks anyway, I got some in the truck. Kate closed the door, thankful to have the sun off of her legs again. What was all that about? After he walked out he just started coughing and all the color went out of him like he was about to throw up. What did you say to him? Kate asked, sounding more accusatory than she had been. Nothing, just a bit more about the snake. Joan was following Kate through the house, where she set the water glass on the fireplace's hearth, then headed for the porch. He's probably a drug addict. Government jobs are great cover-ups. Or maybe he's just got heat stroke. Do you feel it out here? Hell itself, Joan said. The two women walked around to the rear gate, opening it. Griff had donned goggles and an N95 mask. He held a long pole in one hand, that resembled a trident and a burlap sack in the other. The image made Kate nearly giggle. I can take you down there, Kate said. No, no need. It's just down the slope and around the south side of the house, right? Yes, but it's not a pro- No, the man said, his voice rough, biting, as if he were scolding a child in the back seat. Then it softened some. I'd appreciate it if you stay back here. Don't want you getting bit, either of you. The three stood motionless for a time. Then when Joan and Kate began backing away, Griff slinked in as if he were giving the women a wide berth. 
like they were the vicious animals he needed to come and take care of. He gave them a last look, then made his way through the backyard. Kate and Joan rushed back into the house and down the hallway. Each took a window overlooking the pool and shed, one in the master, one in the library. The girls ran out of the bedroom and into the front of the house. They were sniffing around the entryway and barking, feeding off of one another. The animal control agent was making his way around the pool, his head tracking back and forth, stopping for a time to peer into the murky green of the water. Then he was out of sight, into the space behind the shed. Kate could see the shaking of weeds and the stalks of vines that had laced into the weave of the chain-link fence and just barely made out the sound of repetitive clanking, as if the man were banging his trident against the fence. I can't see him anymore, Kate yelled out. Can you? Nope. Jane replied. I think the view is worse from this room. There was a glimpse of the man's boot on the far side of the shed, then the pole pumping in and out. Kate said, I think you found it. Where? Joan said. When Kate heard footsteps coming into the room, she waited for Joan to see for herself. Feeling her mother-in-law behind her, Kate shifted over a bit to provide more space. Instead, she could just feel hot breath on her neck a slight wheeze and rattle from lungs that had been taking in smoke during most of their existence. The breath was sour, bitter, and it made Kate's stomach lurch. She wanted to turn around, move away, but she seemed to be locked onto the pumping motion of the battle behind the shed. The breathing increased, a steady puff, 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 as did the stench. This was too much. They were close, but really... How do you tell your mother-in-law to back the fuck off because her mouth smells like a rotting tire fire? Closer still, the breath was wet, sticky on the nape of her neck, and Kate thought Joan was about to bite her. Then Joan spoke. There he is. I see him. But her voice was far off, too far away to be right behind Kate, and as she realized this, the hot breath snapped away, the warm, wet patch on her neck turning frigid, icy. The sensation began spreading down her body like winter water. At the same time, Kate noticed something else. The dogs had started barking from the other room. She could hear nothing in the house. It was as if the home had been plunged underwater. Outside, Griff wasn't exactly running from the shed, but almost skipping. Hearing the gate open and close through the filter of the window pane seemed to snap Kate's paralysis. She turned, sure that she'd see something, maybe ghost any or the thick blackness of the bathroom molded into a humanoid shape, reaching out for her. But no one stood behind her. Instead, just outside the master bedroom door in the hallway, Roxy and Echo were sitting next to each other, shoulder against shoulder, like a furry version of the Grady twins. They weren't panting or wagging, weren't blinking. They weren't moving at all, just staring at Kate. No, not at her. Right in front of her. As if they could see something she couldn't. Then, Joan came out of the library, pushing between the dogs. He's coming back upstairs! This seemed to break the dog's trance, and they trotted down the hallway after her, nails clicking and scraping. Suddenly, feeling colder and more alone than she could stand, Kate jogged after them. They were barking again through the screen door at the shapes of Joan and Griff in the carport. When she got outside, the sun felt as if it were soaking into her skin, like she'd just fallen through the surface of a frozen lake and was now wrapped in one of those shock blankets and placed next to a fireplace. Warming up seemed like the only relevant action right now, but when Kate noticed Griff had already gotten back in his truck, she clicked into the middle of the conversation. 
I have no idea, Griff said, then slammed his door. He rolled down the window halfway and told Joan, That was not a native Georgian species. Hell, I don't even think it's legal in the States. Joan said, Do you think someone in the neighborhood bought it illegally? Like, on the black market? And then it got out somehow? Possible. Either way, just stay clear of it. Don't approach it. Keep your dogs out of the pool area, okay? Finding her voice again, Kate asked, Is it poisonous? If it's what I think it is, yes. But I've never seen one in person. Through the window, he held out a business card. When Joan pinched the edge, the man snatched his hand back, as if Joan's hand were the snake about to bite him. So what do we do? Joan asked. The snake is probably long gone by now, having run-ins with you and now me. But if for some reason he comes back, call us. That's it? Kate asked, realizing her arms were tucked across her chest hard enough to stifle her breathing. She forced herself to let her hands fall to her sides. She wriggled her fingers, waking them up again. There's nothing else I can do. The animal went under the fence into the next yard. Go into their yard, Joan said, her voice taking on a demanding tone. Don't have permission. They haven't called us. What about probable cause? Joan asked. Do I look like the police, ma'am? I'm sorry. I have to go. Call us if the snake comes back. He sounded as if he wanted nothing less than to get another phone call from either woman. But before they could say anything else, Griff rolled up his window and was backing out of the driveway, his exhaust coughing out choppy plumes of blue smoke. Kate raised a hand and waved, then felt silly and let her arm fall back down. As soon as the animal control truck vanished from one end of the street, a beat-up U-Haul was chugging up from the other. Denny was driving, and he slowly backed the vehicle into the driveway. He'd sweat through his polo shirt. The tattoos on his arms were slick and red from the sun. Well, that was just about the worst damn retail experience I've ever had. Who's that? We have snakes, Joan said. Of course we do, Denny said, as if this level of things going wrong were completely normal. In a way, they were. Today's episode was presented by Dr. Scarelove. Theme music was provided by Atrium Carcheri. Again, it is so rad that I'm able to use Simon's music for haunting season. Please check out Atrium Carceri and all the other incredible artists from the Cryo Chamber label on Bandcamp. You can also find links to all of Simon's music in the show notes. And be sure to like and subscribe, as this is a brand new podcast. Any reviews on Apple Podcasts are helpful. And remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?